Last week, uh, Stan uh, presented a really fascinating lesson. Uh, as we have been working through this last uh, series of lessons on discipleship, and we've been focusing specifically on how do you fight against the devil? I mean, what, what kind of defense do you have? What kind of offense do you have? And, and last week, Stan had shared with me a few weeks earlier some thoughts about the battle between Jesus and Satan out in the wilderness, and I said, you've got to preach that. I, I mean, that is just an incredible insight and, and so Stan shared some of his work in the Old Testament. Uh, he's attending Ambridge with Rodney and, and is just really developing quickly as an Old Testament scholar. And, and one of the things he shared last week was about the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur among the Jews, the holiest day among the Jews, when atonement is made for the sins of the entire nation. And one of the things that Stan did was he called the lesson the last day of atonement. And he basically described how that Jesus, when he came into the world, was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, but especially the day of atonement. And he began to describe last week what was involved in the day of atonement. And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating was his linking the baptism of Jesus with a day of atonement. He came out of Matthew's gospel, and he said, you know, when Jesus went to get baptized, to be baptized by John, he was not baptized for the remission of sins. He had no sins. We know that. The rest of the people were, were baptized based on their repentance and for the remission of sins. But Jesus came, and of course John said, I need to baptize, be baptized by you, and, and, and you want to baptize, you want me to be baptized, I need to be baptized by you, but you want me to baptize you. He says, why? And Jesus says, in order to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, in order to fulfill everything that has been spoken about me. And among the roles that Jesus had, which a lot of times we don't think about, is the role of high priest. Now, he's not a high priest after the Levitical tribe, after the family of Aaron. We know that. Psalm 110, verse 1, most often quoted passage in the New Testament. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You go down to verse 4, and David continues in the psalm. You are a priest forever, but you're after the order of Melchizedek. You're a high priest, but you're a high priest under a different order. And one of the things that Stan argued is that the anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit at his baptism was the anointing of him as a high priest and his cleansing. The high priest would bathe in water before going to make atonement for the people. And you get this beautiful fulfillment of the cleansing of Jesus. Not that he was impure in any way, but to fulfill the law of Moses. And so he's led out into the wilderness like one of the two goats. And that was what was fascinating, is that Stan said that you have the two goats. One goes to, to the sin offering. One goes to Azazel. Uh, I was fascinated by the fact that so many modern translations leave that word, not as scapegoat, but as Azazel. In other words, this goes back to Satan himself. He's the one that brought sin into the world. Let's send it back to him. And how did Jesus fulfill both? He became the lamb that shed its blood when he shed his blood, as Joel talked about a few moments ago, on the cross. 
And then he was led by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness where he would then take back to Satan the sins of the people that had been placed upon him. Now let me remind you of what John Mark Comer said in his book, Live No Lies. He says, our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and to liberate them with the weapon of truth. That's kind of been the focus all the way through this battle against the devil. Now, going back to the account that we looked at last week, and I'm coming out of Luke's account instead of Matthew's account. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Notice that language there. You would take the the ram or, 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 or the goat that had the sins of the people, and a man would lead that goat to release it into the wilderness. In this case, it is the Holy Spirit who leads Jesus out into the wilderness. And then... Luke tells us that he is tempted for 40 days. Matthew leads it as if he fasts for 40 days and then he's tempted. Luke says, no, all of it was a part of the temptation of Jesus. But he goes out into the wilderness and he's assaulted by Satan for 40 days. And notice the first of the temptations. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of it, he was hungry. Can we all say amen to that? I, I'm hungry just thinking about what Jesus went through. I mean, I don't know if you've ever fasted. Uh, the longest fast I've been able to do, or let me rephrase that, that I have done, is about a day and a half. And let me tell you, after a day, your head starts hurting, you start, you know, your stomach's growling, you're like, man... And then, you know, day and a half, they tell me it gets easier as you go. I've decided not to try that. At least not yet. I probably need to. But Jesus was, a, was hungry. One of the things you find in the temptation narrative is, is basically Satan going down the three avenues that you read John talking about. How that all the sin that is in the world begins with either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. You see it in the case of Eve in Genesis 3. You see it in the case of Jesus in both Matthew 4 and here in Luke 4. So he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Boy, you want to talk about the desire of the flesh. And so the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God. Satan always begins his temptations with doubt. He wants you to question God. What you believe about him, what you've been told about him, every temptation begins with doubt. You go to Genesis 3, 1. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent says to Eve. Did God really say that? Creating doubt. You know, I mean, can you trust God? Is his his word really trustworthy? And if you are the Son of God, why don't you just go ahead and tell this stone to become bread? In other words, if you are the Son of God and you have the power you claim to have, just go ahead and preempt the natural order of things. Or to use an illustration from my childhood, you remember how when you were a kid, recess time, 
And you'd go outside and you'd want to go up the slide and there'd be a long line of people. And so you'd get in line only to have Bobby. And, and I don't know why I'm picking the name Bobby. It just popped in my mind. If you're named Bobby, I apologize. But only to have Bobby to skip the line. I mean, he goes up, gets in the front. Bobby, skip the line. And in so many ways, that's exactly what Satan was asking Jesus to do. Why don't you just skip the line instead of waiting to get food? Just make it out of these stones. And Jesus' immediate response was, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And if I can use a boxing metaphor, round one was over. Jesus had won. But Satan comes back at him and leads him up to a high place and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Notice the lust of the eyes this time. And what's fascinating to me is Satan's power to be able to do this. Shows you how powerful he is. I mean, in just a moment, here's the Chinese empire. Here's the empire down in India. Here, here's what's going on down in Africa. Here's the, you know, the, the empires that are over in Central and South America. All in an instant, Jesus saw all of them. I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Now, you've got to remember, Satan's a liar. It hadn't been given to him as much as he had taken it. I mean, yes, God had allowed him to do that, but as to say that God said, I tell you what, I'm going to give you the kingdoms of the world. No, that's not what had happened. Satan, through his, his minions, had taken the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus had been sent to take them back. And once again, here's Satan saying, I will give them to you right now. Right now. In other words, you can, once again, you can skip the line. Go to the front. You know, get on the slide quicker. You turn over to John, and one of the things you see Jesus constantly talking about is that he had come to take back this world from Satan's power. Notice the language here. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And, and, of course, you get into the end of the book of Matthew, and when Jesus is resurrected, he says, Now, all authority in heaven and on earth, that which Satan was offering him, if he would just bow down and worship him, Jesus says, No, I'm going to take it away from you. And so Jesus responds again. And by the way, notice here, this preempting of the process. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God was going to make Adam and Eve more like him as they went. But here's Satan saying, you can jump to the front of the line if you'll just eat this fruit. And so when Jesus responded, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Both the irony of the God in heaven and the God in flesh at the same time. And so, round two is over. Goes to Jesus. And so once again, Satan comes and leads him to Jerusalem to the highest point. And Rodney, I don't know where the highest point in Jerusalem would have been. I mean, here's kind of an image of what they think the temple looked like back then. Uh, the ridge you see over kind of on the top right, that's the Mount of Olives. That's facing east. 
and, and what you see down here is the south side of the temple. And, and you can go now and sit on the very steps that you see right there. They've excavated those steps. And you can sit where Jesus literally would have walked up into the temple. It's one of the neatest things in going and visiting Jerusalem. But at the very top of the south side was what was called Solomon's Colonnade. It was an area where groups could gather, a big massive area, where you could have, I mean, literally thousands of people gather at the same time. And my guess would have been somewhere on this south side. Now, can I prove it? No. And Rodney may have a different opinion. He may, he may say, no, it had to have been on the north side, or who knows where it was. But basically, he takes him to the highest point, and there from the highest point, he says, if you are the Son of God, again, the doubt, if you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. And by now, Satan's realized what Jesus is doing. I mean, Jesus keeps quoting Scripture. And so guess what Satan does? He quotes Scripture. Which is why it's not unusual at all when someone says you can prove anything with Scripture. Yes, in the wrong hands you can. I mean, there are people that misquote Scripture all the time. And let me just tell you, as a preacher, I probably do it sometimes. You know, I'm sure there have been times Rodney's been sitting out there going, Ooh, not sure that passage means that, Les. You know, but he's so kind not to, you know, phone me up and tell me that. I appreciate that. He just instead just comes up and says, you know better than that. No, I'm joking. He doesn't say that. But I know he feels that way because of his teaching of so many, you know, preachers all over the years, you know, and, and taking them and trying to say, okay, let's kind of move you from here over to here. Satan misquotes the text. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, if you're the son of God, just go ahead and jump off and prove to everybody. I mean, show them who you are, the pride of life. And Jesus again responds and has said, do not put the Lord your God. Don't, don't test him. Coming from, once again, the book of Deuteronomy. And round three is over. And with round three, kind of like at the Olympics, Satan's like, okay, time for me to leave for the time being. And so Luke says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In other words, he's be been beaten three times in a row, and he's like, I'm going to back off for the time being. I love what the half-brother of Jesus said. He said, submit yourselves then to God, and if you resist the devil, he will leave you. He will flee from you because he had heard it in the story of his big brother. So resisting. And of course, the question you've got to ask is how? And the answer is real simple. It is written. I mean, you, you, you can't miss that in the text. You go over to Matthew, it is written, it is written, it is written. You go to Luke, it is written, it is written, it is said. He kind of varies that third one there in Luke's gospel. But it is always, go back to the text. Go back to the scriptures, to the word of God. Remember the battle that, that John Mark Comer said, it's a battle in, in, this, in this fight to take back control of our minds, and it's fought right up here. I mean, if I could get across one point today about sin and temptation and the war we're in, it is all fought right up here. And, and that's why it has to be prepared for, trained for, defended right up here here. I love Romans because if you turn over to Romans, 
Paul's going to talk about the mind. And he leads us through the entire process in the span of basically 12 chapters. But, but in chapter 1, he begins with the fact that we gave up the knowledge of God originally. That's what man did. Notice the language here. Furthermore, just as they, talking about our ancestors, did not think, there's the mind language, worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. It's retained right up here. Notice what God did. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. In other words, if you want to go down that path, you go down that path. One of the things that we've been talking about on Sunday mornings in our Genesis class is is the punishment of sin prescriptive or descriptive? In other words, is, is this something God does to you or is it something that God allows you to do to yourself? I used the illustration of my grandson recently. Uh, he was there at the house and uh, staying with us. June was cooking in the kitchen. She had turned off the stove, and he wanted to know if the eye was still hot. So that little five-year-old went over there and stuck his hand right on that eye right after June had turned it off. Anybody want to guess what he discovered? Boy, he pulls that thing back, and he's like, I'm okay, I'm okay, before he started going, ah, you know. I mean, is the eye hot? Yes. Now, did June intentionally burn his fingers when he touched the eye? No. But he suffered the consequences of his action. And I think that's basically what Paul is saying here. When we refuse to retain God in our mind, we suffer the consequences of our action, which is a depraved mind. Notice the language as it goes on. He says, this is in chapter 7. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind. And basically what he's saying is, is that there are these two forces inside of every one of us. The flesh and the spirit. And they're in war against one another. We all know that. We've experienced it. We experience it every day. And notice what he says, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. What is Satan wanting wanting to do? He's wanting me to to take me under his control. My thinking under his control. That's what he wants. And that's the battle we fight. So Paul goes on in chapter 8 and he says, Can I describe the two camps? Those who live according to the flesh, the carnal nature, the sinfulness that, that we commit, they have their minds set on what that flesh desires. Does that surprise you? I mean, when you're sitting there at work and you see your boss making so much money and, and you're like, wow, he won't miss just a little bit. I mean, I can, I can skip to the front of the line by, you know, stealing and he'll never know it and he'll help me and my family. Let's just go ahead and do that. Are you sitting there, you know, with your next-door neighbor, and you're like, you know what, he's not going to miss those tools he's left out in the yard. I mean, he'll think somebody else took them, and, you know, hey, I can maybe make a little bit extra. Or, and, I mean, you could do that for any sin that we commit. Let's just skip to the front of the line. And Paul says, when you do that, I know what's in control. You're in control of the fleshly, carnal side of you. Because he goes on, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. That's why we're here today. I hope that's why you came. is because you're like, I need to be in the presence of God. I need God affecting me. 
Colossians would say this. Paul would say, now that you're a Christian, you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I had to write a paper on this when I was in graduate school, this very text right here. And one of the things I saw in the text was the importance of realizing that it's not just sinfulness that Satan uses. Satan uses a lot of good things to fill our minds, to fill our lives, so that we can't focus on the spiritual things. In other words, let's substitute the good for the excellent. And we do it all the time. I mean, I think when we get to the end of our life, and especially after the resurrection, I think we'll say to ourselves, man, if I could just use the time I spent doing this, doing this over here, what a difference I could have made in the world. I mean, do you think how many hours and hours and hours we put in so many areas of our lives when that same time could be spent changing the world for Jesus Christ. And if you sit down with Joel at lunch, Joel will tell you why the world, and, and of course we all know it here in America, needs Jesus Christ so bad. I don't know if y'all saw the headlines this week. Headlines this week said by 2045, less than 25 years, America will be a majority non-Christian. And that's in the broadest sense of the word. That's how quickly Christianity is caving in in America. We, will, we are already and will be even increasingly a mission field because of the very need that we have here. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Notice again, mind, mind, mind. So that when you get to chapter 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That's where it begins. That's where the battle is fought and won. But it, it, it cannot be fought at the moment the battle takes place. That's one of the things that we saw over in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. Is that, is that Russia assumed that with their military as powerful as it was, that basically it would take them about three days to, to replace the regime in Kiev with a different regime more friendly toward Russia. But I, I don't think what they calculated was how much the Ukrainian army had been preparing ever since the taking over of Crimea for just that possibility. And the next thing you saw is the Russian military invading in, long lines of tanks and vehicles all heading toward Kiev, and then all at once the Ukrainian army begins to attack, and it's like, whoa, what just happened? You see, I think a lot of times what happens with us is we think we're ready, Satan attacks, and we go, whoa, what just happened? Why? Because we weren't prepared and we misjudged our enemy. And so, how is the mind renewed or transformed? And the answer is real simple. And I know this sounds just so old-fashioned, but it goes back to the Word of God. I'm not presenting anything new today. I mean, I'm just laying out what we all have heard throughout our lives, the role of Scripture in the transforming of our minds. And so, how does it do it? Number one, Scripture reprograms our thinking. The stories... The commandments, the poetry, 
All of it is there so that as we take it in, it transforms us. Brothers and sisters, put it very simple. We become what we focus our attention on. It is that simple. Notice what the text says. By the way, who knows what this is? If you know what this is, would you raise your hand? If you know what it is. All right, I see about two people, three people, all of them young people. I don't see anybody, you know, my age. Oh, oh, yeah, Bob over here is right. Bob, thank you so very much. You've redeemed the older generation. Thank you. Yeah, if, if you have something called an iPhone, then you will be updating it to iOS. I even have a hard time pronouncing the system. iOS 16. Latest system. Now, if you've got an Android, you're updating yours as well. You know, one of the things we all understand is you have a phone, you have an iPad or a, a pad of another kind. If you've got a computer, you're constantly upgrading the system. Why? Otherwise, it becomes obsolete. Spiritually, it's the exact same thing. God's Word, more than anything, is about reprogramming the system so that we become more and more like the image of God. Notice 2 Timothy 3.14. Look at the text there. 3.14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. I mean, here's Paul writing to the young man Timothy. Paul's fixing to die. And so he's telling Timothy, hang on to what you've learned what you've been convinced of, and look at what he's talking about. Verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed in its inspired voice. We hear useful teaching, rebuke, correction, instruction, training for a life that is right. It's how you program us in order to live a right life so that God's people may be up to the task ahead and how all they need to accomplish every good work. Where does it begin? It begins with the Word of God. And then number two, Scripture arms us for battle against the devil. You go to the Psalms, Psalm 119, verse 11. One of the most fascinating verses there in this beautiful, you know, this is the longest song in the Old Testament. I'm still waiting for Blake to lead us in this song one Sunday. I mean, he's going to get up and he's going to say, we're going to sing Psalm number 119. And we're going to sing verses 132, 67, 89, 93, 105. Y'all see how it goes. I mean, this is one long song. But notice uh, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? What's the psalmist wanting us to know? Notice. That I might not sin against you. You know, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, one of the things that's fascinating about Ephesians 6 is you have at the end of the book this concept of warfare. Spiritual warfare. And he says, listen... As believers, we have got to, because of the conflict we're involved in, we've got to put on the full armor of God. The, the Greek word there is panoply. And, and we even hear it sometimes in some of the songs. Put on the panoply of God. And, and so you get all of these defensive, protective things. You put on the helmet of salvation. You take the shield of faith. You put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. You've got all of these things that are going to protect you when Satan throws everything he's got at you. But what's fascinating is, is that you only have one offensive weapon. 
You got all five defensive things you put on, but one offensive weapon. And notice what he says. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's how you do spiritual battle. In fact, I, I grew up, you know, as, as a young preacher, people, you know, teachers especially at Freed Hardman saying, do you have your swords with you today? And we knew exactly what the teachers were talking about. I know we live in a modern age, but it is the ancient words that's going to prepare us for the battle, protect who we are, but more than that, cause Satan to flee from us. And so let me put it just as simple as I know how. You've got to get the Word of God in your life. I know we're busy. I talk to my sons all the time. Call them up. Hey, what you got going on? Ah, uh, karate practice this afternoon. Okay. What do you got tomorrow? Uh, we got soccer practice tomorrow. What you doing Saturday? All, both, both kids are in soccer games on Saturday. Oh, okay. What, what about during the day? Well, you know, they're in school. My, my two oldest grandsons are now in kindergarten. I tell June, good night, girl. You're getting old. Yeah. And she just looks at me and says, you're older than me. And I'm like, yeah, don't remind me of that. You know, but, but boy, their days are just filled up. And your days are filled up. I get it. But let me tell you that we can't fill our days up with regular to, to forget about that which is excellent. That which is going to protect us and make us who God created us to be, which is the Word of God. That's why worship is so important. You know, I, I see churches that are constantly cutting back on the amount of time they get together as a church. And, and it, it hurts, hurts me. You know, I grew up like some of you did. I was a Sunday morning Bible class, worship Sunday night you know, uh, youth class before church on Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school, you know, seven-day gospel meeting, and even, you know, when you went door-knocking Christian. Uh, I didn't like that last one very much, but anyway, I did it, okay? I mean, uh, youth events, you got together, Bible Bowl, sign me up. The older I get, the more I realize that the time we spend in learning about God and studying God's Word it actually trumps everything else. I want my kids to be good soccer players. I want them to be good in karate, not good enough to beat, beat up their old man, but I want them to be good. You know, I want them to be excellent students. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is how godlike they are. Are they becoming more and more like Jesus? And I'm grateful to both of my sons and daughter-in-laws because they're constantly teaching them you know, the Word of God. And, and I'm excited and appreciative of that so very much. That's why church is important. I tell people, I don't guilt treat people like I used to be guilt-tripped. You know, we used to quote Hebrews 10.25 more than almost any other verse of the Bible. I, growing up, I thought when they said, what's the golden text of the Bible? I thought it was Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Y'all see how well I learned it. You know. Don't miss church. Well, I don't want to guilt you into not missing church. I do want to tell you that when you instill the Word of God in your heart and in the lives of your children, you'll never regret it. If you're not a child of God today, what are you waiting for? Why not make that decision today to become a child of God? 
to let the Word of God that is Jesus Himself come dwell in your life so that you could become more and more like Him and in the doing so, draw the world back to Him. That's what He's asking us to do. And if we can help you in any way, why don't you come? Let's go. We stand and sing.